0: turn with me to what is often known as a Palm Sunday passage. It's not Palm Sunday in our calendar,
1: but as we journey through the book of Mark, this is where we are, chapter 11,
0: verses 1 through 11. Now, until this point in his ministry, Jesus is portrayed by Mark, mostly in his humility and his service in his ministry of teaching and healing and the like. In fact, Jesus, up to this point, squelched Efforts to expose his identity as the Messiah. Now this is the point, chapter 11, where all of this changes. Now Jesus begins to publicly display his claims to be Jesus Jesus the Christ, that is the Messiah, by his actions. He won't say this publicly until chapter 14, but in chapters 11 up till the middle of 14 we see by his actions he is proclaiming to be the Christ. Follow along as I read the first 11 verses, sometimes known as the triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We're going to stop there. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Father, this is your word. Open our ears to hear it and our hearts to understand it. Lord, I pray that everything said, done, spoken, thought here in this place be pleasing in your sight, would be consistent with your word, or else pass away, never to be heard from again. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Well today, whether you're a celebrity or a corporate executive or a politician, if you're any kind of public persona, you perhaps hire public relations people known as PR people who are professionals, to manipulate or interact with the media to promote yourself, to protect yourself, or to prepare the people for your reception. you see that all the time. Media is a big thing, and people promoting themselves are often trying to get us to think certain things about them. Remember, Jesus, to this point, had kept his position and person quiet He had let his actions speak for themselves, and he even had told individuals not to let others know his identity as the Christ. Even though he drew great crowds to his ministry because of his teaching and his miracles, yet many people did not understand, probably nobody really at this point understood the magnitude of his identity as the Messiah. Now, however, as R.T. France, a commentator, writes, Jesus gives what you might call a blatant messianic self-advertisement that he is the Messiah. In other words, he is demonstratively fulfilling the scripture that points to the fact that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior, who was to come. And the way he's doing this is he's publicly here fulfilling the scriptures He's publicly fulfilling the law, the writings, and the prophets, every every little portion of the Old Testament scriptures. We're going to look this morning particularly at how this event fulfills these different scriptures. First of all, Jesus publicly is fulfilling here in entering into Jerusalem, the fashion in which he does, he is fulfilling the law. They might notice at the very first part of this, this extensive details of locating and obtaining the donkey. In fact, it was kind of interesting. As we went this week, Gene had put on the uh, bulletin cover of the typical Palm Sunday palm, and he said, well, you know, it's not really Palm Sunday, so he put that picture of the donkey on there. And, you know, how often do you come to church and you open up the bulletin and you see a donkey? And I thought, you know, in some ways... We all can understand that if God can make a donkey talk, he can make us all say things to his glory. But the donkey here has more symbols than just the donkey that Balaam wrote in Scripture. The details here remind us, first of all, about Jesus' preparations for this.
1: Now, on one hand,
0: you could say perhaps that Mark is trying to promote the omniscience of Jesus and knowing the details that were to come about this donkey, where it was going to be, how it was tied up and all those things. It's also possible that Jesus may, has made some prearrangements. After all, where are they going? They're going to Bethany. This is the village where Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived. It's perhaps possible that in his contacts there he had this planned out and sent word ahead of time. But whether it's showing that Jesus will know exactly what's going to take place because of his omniscience, or whether he had made prearrangements, that's not necessarily the most important part of this passage. The most important part is why a donkey? Well, first of all, look with me at the passage that was read earlier from Genesis Emmanuel read a passage that was Jacob's basically deathbed talk to all of his sons. Now one of those sons is Judah.
1: And here's what he said
0: to Judah in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And then listen to this verse. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now what is going on here about this donkey or the colt or foal that is going on here? What what is the, the context here in Genesis 49? Well, Jacob is prophesying according to the spirit that is inspiring him to say these words. First of all, that the king will come from Judah. This is the idea of the scepter. The scepter shall not depart from you. This idea here that the ruler's staff is between his feet until tribute comes to him and the obedience of the... This is a reminder of the king, the royal line. So in other words, this is a prophecy of the royal line of Israel coming from this tribe of Judah.
1: Not only this, but notice this kind of rule. It says the scepter shall not
0: depart and the ruler's staff... Also, shall not depart from between his feet. This isn't the normal rule of a king. This is predicting or prophesying a forever rule. Until all the obedience of the peoples. Notice it says, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Until Tribute comes to him. In other words, this is not just a king because he says he's a king or because he's in the tradition of a king where he comes in a hereditary line of kings. This is a king until all the people are obedient to him. So it's a forever rule. And then it's in this context of the king with a forever reign coming from the line of Judah that we come to verse 11 of that text. And it's interesting. Why the cult? But in the context here, it says he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now, if you know what it's like to wash something in wine, you think, well, that's totally ridiculous. After all, if you wash something in wine, it ruins it, doesn't it? You know, if I were to wash any of my clothing in wine, I'd have to throw them out. Not only would they stink not only would they have this fermenting liquid upon them, but the stains could not be gotten out. So why this particular thing? Well, this is, too, a prophecy of something called the atonement. This is, in essence, a reminder of the Lord's Supper that was to come. And, of course, the wine here, as we understand this, in the context of this king of the line of Judah, is a reminder of the foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper where he says, My blood of the covenant is in this wine. So here, in this colt or this foal, you have this background here. This donkey is representative of the line of Judah. And it fulfills the understanding of this text relating to Judah. But not only this, you also have to understand what kind of cult it was. In fact... It also fulfills this particular aspect of the donkey and the colt and all those things, fulfills some of the other details of the law. In Numbers 19, we read about the fact that they were to keep the Passover. In Deuteronomy 21.3, it talks about a kind of animal that was used for a sacred purpose. We see that again in 1 Samuel 6.7. In this case, in those two cases, it was an oxen. Or it was oxen, an oxen or oxen. And in these cases, they were to be oxen who had never worn a yoke. In other words, this was, like this colt here, was to be an animal used for sacred purpose. And in order for it to be used in sacred purpose, if you have an understanding of the law, if it was a sacrifice, it was supposed to be an animal without blemish. It was supposed to be a young animal. In other words, one that had not been used for work yet. And it was to be, if it was another type of animal to be used, like a colt here for a sacred purpose or or oxen, then it was to be those that had never been made to work before. They were, in that sense, set apart and holy. So this animal must be unused before. So when it says here that this particular colt that was tied,
1: it was a reminder that
0: this colt was one he'd not been ridden before, he'd not been used before, he was for a holy purpose. And even the details about obtaining this donkey were a reminder that Jesus was fulfilling the law of an animal to be used for a holy purpose.
1: Now, why mention
0: all this about the law? Well, you know what it's like if you were to meet a king or queen or something like that. Now, most of us here in our society don't understand the protocol of meeting a king or queen, but sometimes they were quite detailed. When you approach the king or queen, there are certain things you're supposed to say, certain things you're supposed to do, certain things you're not supposed to say or do, and, of course, there are certain ways in which you are to greet this ruler, Now we do this in our world today because it's in good taste and you don't want to offend the king or queen. But back then, in these days, when you approach a king or queen and you did not follow the proper protocol, then there was a problem with your safety and your well-being. If you didn't follow the proper protocol, then you could be executed. In fact, even Queen Esther, married to the king of her time,
1: It said if he had not held out his scepter to her when she came in the room uninvited, she would have been
0: executed. In fact, insults bear consequences, particularly before the king. But Jesus here, as he approaches Jerusalem and uses this donkey,
1: he is fulfilling even the details of
0: approaching his father To fulfill the proper protocol. The right type of animal. The right circumstances which illustrate the right kind of thing that prophecy was prophesying. This was all to fulfill, as it says in scripture, to fulfill all righteousness. For you see, Jesus is our righteousness. We don't have any of our own his public fulfillment of the law, even in this, the first public statement by action that he is the Messiah. In fulfilling this law, he is perfecting his obedience before the Father, the only person in the history of the world who has earned his salvation. He does not earn death. He has earned salvation by perfect obedience. He should not, by rights according to that, die according to the law. He is our righteousness because we don't have any of our own. Our lives are marred by sin. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, but Jesus here also publicly is fulfilling the writings. If you know the Hebrew scriptures, you know that they're divided into three categories. The law, particularly the first five books of the Bible. The writings, that is, the the poetic literature in addition to some of the historical material in the Kings and Chronicles. And then as well, you have the prophets. Well, here, what about the writings? How does Jesus publicly fulfill the writings in the triumphal entry? Well, here's the scene. You know it. You've heard it before. Perhaps if you've been to church the week before Easter, then you've heard these things about Palm Sunday. Here's a typical pilgrimage of the people. They are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast. They're getting ready for Passover. And here is this typical pilgrimage. There are great crowds, people coming from all over the area. For Jesus, he's probably with a group of people from Galilee coming down. There's greens that are there. In fact, the palm is known as a symbol of Israel. And there were times when this symbol was flown even on flags and other types of things. And then they would be often repeating or chanting even antiphonally. In other words, there might be a group behind and a group in front that would antiphonally chant phrases from the Psalms. Particularly Psalm 118 as they approached the gates of Jerusalem. And then as they're coming down towards the city, they come up on the Mount of Olives and they see that breathtaking view of the city of Jerusalem and they begin a time of exaltation and praise as they sing or chant these songs together. Now what's atypical about these particular pilgrimages was this, that someone would ride on the last stage of the journey. This was typically not done.
1: And of course here, the cutting of the branches from the fields and the throwing down of their garments, this also was not typical as they came into the city. So
0: so there are some things here that are unusual in this pilgrimage and amongst this portion of the crowd, but there are other things that are very typical of what's taking place as they enter into Jerusalem. But again, here's Jesus He's riding this donkey. And this is reminiscent particularly of one of the writings in 1 Kings chapter 1. Perhaps you're familiar with how David passed on his kingdom to Solomon. One of his other sons, Adonijah, had set himself up as king in another location. And by this time, Solomon's mother had already been promised that Solomon would become the king and Nathan the prophet and and, uh, Bathsheba go in to see David. And they tell him, you've got to do something. You want Solomon to be king, but Adonijah is setting himself up as king. And so Solomon tells them what to do. He prepares them to anoint and publicly display Solomon as king. And one of the things that happens is he says, prepare my mule, the royal donkey. The mule here is symbolized as a royal animal particularly in what's taking place as they come into the city. You see, what has happened here is, even by this time, horses have supplanted mules for these purposes. Now when the king comes in triumphant march into the city in victory, they don't ride on donkeys anymore, they ride on horses Horses were seen more powerful and more glorious, and they might come with their chariots and all these other things. And this was typical for one who won a battle. But Jesus' purpose is not to come in with the military might and victory of a general king. He's coming here with a particular association of David, who would come into Jerusalem on a donkey and David, who said, My son Solomon prepare the royal mule so that he can come in. And interesting to note, this is actually the only time in the entire Gospels that we find Jesus riding. The only time. Why? Because here it's fulfilling not only the reminiscences and implications of the royal line of David, but it's also a reminder Of this royal psalm, Psalm 118. If you look at Psalm 118, particularly verses 19 through 27, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. And of course, who is the righteous is particularly Jesus. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then here is what we often associate particularly with this event. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You see here, the pilgrims have been chanting or reciting, perhaps even singing or perhaps going back and forth in antiphonous uh, volume. One statement to another from Psalm 118 as They have completed now the halleo Corpus.
1: What have they been
0: doing on their journey? In part, they've been reciting Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, known as the Hallel Psalms. These psalms that indicate for us in this context the celebration of God's work in their lives to bring them the great blessings that they have. So they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Jesus. Obviously, he's coming in the name of the Lord, isn't he? He said in John, he says, everything that the Father does, and I see the Father doing, I do before you. And he invites us to join him in his work. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's also described here as the rejected stone. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is part of the context of this Phrase about blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The righteous one rejected. How how appropriate is that? Jesus is coming into the city. That he'll have this one group of individuals. The Galileans come. And exalt him. And praise him. And declare to the world that he is king. And then just a little bit later, probably a different crowd, likely from Jerusalem itself. It's it's unlikely that there were very many from this crowd of Galileans standing there at the trial of Jesus. But people in Jerusalem are going to cry, crucify, crucify him, because they are rejecting him.
1: Here it says, the rejected stone.
0: But perhaps even most appropriately in Psalm 118 After it says, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us again, Jesus says, I am the light of the world.
1: It says, bind the festal
0: sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Of course, you know, when this was written, they're thinking about the sacrifice to be offered in this feast, in this celebration. But here, who is the sacrifice? The sacrifice is Jesus. The righteous one, the rejected one. The one that they're proclaiming to be the king and the Messiah is the one who's going to sacrifice himself. And again, what does this indicate or lead to? The atonement. One of the most shocking literary developments is when you're reading a story and you're, you, you fall in love with the main character. He's, just, he's kind of the, the good guy in the story. And he, he has all the character development and, and all that that's taken place. And the climax of the book is where problems come in, and there's uh, hopefully some way to resolve this climax by this main character figuring out things or doing things or having things done to him so that now everything is put right in the world. Isn't that what you want in a book? I found myself reading a book yesterday. I couldn't put it down. I read hundreds of pages in this book. And, and I, I, you know, it gets towards the end of the book. Now, this book wasn't like this, but the shocking literary development here of, 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 of any story is when the main character sacrifices himself and dies for the sake of others.
1: In some ways, I think this is why the Star Wars series
0: was so popular. The very first movie, if you remember, the the character that was emblematic of good and power and all of those things was this character Obi-Wan Kenobi. And by the end of the movie, he's fighting the bad guy, Darth Vader, and he's fighting them with the swords, you know, the the blasting and the the lights and all this kind of stuff. And he's fighting them, and he turns and he looks at the one that he's trying to promote uh, to be the next savior of the Empire. And he turns to him and he turns back and he sacrifices himself and is gone. See Jesus here coming into the city. He's the king. He's the one that the scepter shall not depart from. He is the one proclaiming his kingship, riding on the royal donkey. He is the one where they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the one where they're they're laying their garments on the ground as the donkey walks over them. He's the one that they're waving the palm branches, symbolizing the wonderful power of God in Israel. And here is the king. These are Galileans who have seen his miracles, heard his teaching And they're powerfully proclaiming the wonder of seeing him coming into the city. And he's coming in for the purpose of dying on the cross for his people. This event is the exaltation of Christ at his public pronouncement with a hint of sacrifice. Christ is our Passover lamb. You see, he's not just publicly fulfilling the law. He's not just publicly fulfilling the writings. He's also publicly fulfilling the prophets after all. Of course, they do find a donkey as it's supposed to be. They have brought it to Jesus. Jesus is riding on this donkey into the city. They spread their cloaks on the road. They spread their leafy branches according to verse 8. But then verse 9, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, a reminder, Hosanna meaning Uh, save us he says blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David Hosanna in the highest first of all the whole idea of him coming in at this point in the context of our passage do you remember what happened in chapter 10 there was this healing of blind Bartimaeus And Bartimaeus was able to see, and he's rejoicing, assumedly as they leave Jericho and the the outskirts of Jericho, this man Bartimaeus is coming following Jesus amongst the crowd and amongst those who are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Isaiah 29 verses 18 and 19 says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, And out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. Who is poorer than a blind beggar? The blind man saw in in chapter 10. Now in chapter 11 as Jesus is approaching with his disciples and with the crowds the gates of Jerusalem. Here's blind Bartimaeus. He now sees. And the poorest of the poor, the beggars at the door, like Bartimaeus, ironically his name, again meaning the son of the honored one, he is exalting in the Holy One. Even by this act of the healing of, And then, of course, the coming into the gates. Even this is playing out the prophecy of Isaiah. That even the humblest of the humble, the deaf and the blind and the poor, shall not only hear and see, but shall praise the Lord. So this joyful entrance in the context here of blind Bartimaeus being healed. As he says those words, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Remember, he's the first one in the book of Mark that has used the term son of David. Somehow God impressed upon this man this title for Jesus And now it indicates here the fulfillment of the scriptures that the poor shall rejoice. But if that wasn't enough, Matthew quotes for us. John also quotes for us from Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, particularly verse 9, but verses 9 through 13. Verse 9 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Humble, righteous, having salvation. Who is coming? The king is coming. Matthew says the people shouted out these words, Hosanna to the son of David. This is the royal king. Luke tells us, they said, Blessed is the king who comes. Not just the one who comes. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. John says this, Even the king of Israel they were proclaiming. Whether they knew it or not, I, I don't think they really understood what they were saying. They were using the words of Psalm 118 and they were in a sense prophesying or pro- fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. They didn't understand the magnitude of what they were saying. Most of them had no clue as to what the king of Israel was really going to be. They were thinking of a majestic, earthly ruler who would reorganize the nation, defeat, and overthrow the Romans so that they could once again have a glorious nation with riches pouring in and their borders extended. But here is their king, humble, riding on a donkey. He is righteous and having salvation. And then verse 10 says this in Zechariah 9, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He's speaking peace. He's not speaking the great military victory of a winning army. He's speaking peace. After all, what do the scriptures say? Isaiah 9, 6, the Prince of Peace. Luke 2, verse 14, when the angels are proclaiming the coming of the king, peace to the earth, goodwill towards men. John 14, 27, when Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and life, and all those things, that same chapter, he says, My peace I give to you. He doesn't say, okay, you're going to have all my power. You're going to have all my glory. No, he says, I'm going to give you my peace. The peace that passes all understanding. The peace that is only possible by his atoning death on the cross. The peace that is only possible by confessing your sins and believing upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The peace that is only possible when your guilt has been washed away by the one who had his robes. by by you having your robes washed in the wine or the blood of Christ. But notice also this. Who's he the ruler of? All. Everybody. This isn't just, okay, he's going to rule over all the people of Judah. Or he's going to rule over all of Israel. No, it says... In Zechariah 9.10 it says he shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There's no other king. None. He's ruler of all. You know there's been a lot of pomp and ceremony in South Carolina lately. There have been those who form these great big crowds and they introduce different candidates And they say, this is the next president of the United States. It's this great celebration. They have their cheers and they have bands that are playing and they have pictures and the perfect background for the cameras to see and all the people who are supposed to to cheer and do the right things at just the right times. Really, it's kind of silly when you think about it. But this is the celebration of the king who is king of all. This is the one time in the gospel narratives when Jesus rides on a donkey into the city publicly proclaiming by his actions that this is really true. He does not rebuke them. He does not tell them to be quiet. He does not say to the people around them, don't call me king, don't call me messiah, don't tell me to save you. In other words, he's by his silence He is inviting that praise at this particular point in history because it's true. Christ is our king. He's not a national king. He's a covenantal forever king. In fact, why does he give freedom? Why can they sing, Hosanna in the highest, save us, save us, King David?
1: Why can they say that? It's because of this. If you look at verse 11 in Zechariah 9, it says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you,
0: I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. What a context. Again, because of the Lord's covenant of blood. Now we could look at the covenant of blood in the Old Testament and see how uh, the blood shed was to cover the sins of the people. Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins. Of course, they sprinkled the people with blood. They sprinkled the book of the law with blood. They sprinkled the altar with blood. In fact, everything there was sprinkled with blood. This blood of the covenant was a recognition that only by death can our sins be atoned for and yet you and I
1: were not the perfect sacrifice we can't die for ourselves
0: and the animals even though they were commanded to be sacrificed in the old testament they were just temporary they might cover the sins that have been committed but the minute they're sacrificed we begin sinning again and they don't cover the next sins And here there is one sacrifice. The sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God. The righteous one who had fulfilled all law. And this event was fulfilling the prophecy of the Messiah to come. Because of the Lord's covenant of blood. And then of course referring to the atonement. Jesus really will fulfill the words Hosanna to the King of David. Save us. You see, this event in history, documented by all four gospel writers, embedded upon their memory, even though at the time they had no clue what he was talking about, even though at the time all these actions really had no meaning to them, yet by the power of the Holy Spirit, when God and the Lord Jesus Christ by his Spirit opened their mind to understand the scriptures, they all knew the importance of this event, that he was accepting The title of Christ. Jesus is God's Christ and the only way to salvation. That means there's nothing you can do. There's not going to be a scale up in heaven when you enter the gates of heaven that says, okay, let's weigh out your bad deeds and your good deeds and see which one wins. No, there's no scale like that. Because even your good deeds, Scripture tells us, will go on that bad scale and weigh it down. In fact, the bad scale would sink all the way down to the depths of the earth and the good scale would have nothing on it. You're not going to go to heaven and say, Oh, by the way, I was a member of my church.
1: Or I read the Scriptures enough. Or I did enough good deeds or I gave my money enough. No, none of those
0: things will save you. The only thing that will save you is the Christ Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For he alone is king, he alone is Christ, he alone is the Messiah that fulfills all the scriptures of the Old Testament that Jesus would save his people. Come to him, worship him, exalt in him. He is the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a Savior. We thank you that it's open not just to the Israelites, but it's also true for the Gentiles. Lord, that we have a Savior. When we ask you to save us, you provided for us, Jesus. Lord, move our hearts to understand and our ears to hear your word, that we might be convicted of our sin and come humbly before you, worshiping you, praising you, exalting in your name, because Jesus is the King. We thank you in Jesus' name.